Hey guys, this is Ethan. Just a quick heads up. For one, the entire episode does not sound this bad. I'm in a coffee shop on my laptop. Two, this episode contains discussion of trauma. I wouldn't say we go too deep or too intense with anything, but I just don't want anyone to be caught off guard as we do discuss trauma of various kinds. So, um, yeah, just be aware of that going into the episode in case you missed the description. Now that that's out of the way, I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks for listening. Hey everybody and welcome to Abscond with Ethan Renault. I am Ethan Renault, and this week I have my very best friend in the whole world whom I'm on the phone with. We're doing this long distance. This is Dave, so everybody say hello to Dave. Actually, Dave, say hello to everybody. Hey everybody. <laughs> um, so... If you have listened to this podcast before, you'll know I've had Dave on more than anybody else, and we've actually talked about doing this weekly, you know, the two of us, because personally, I hate just sitting in a room by myself, talking to myself and recording it, because it's terribly boring and also hard to keep the conversation going long enough to keep it entertaining. Um, Not only entertaining, but informative and Etc. So um, I talked to Dave. He has a high definition microphone. This is our first time doing it, so we'll see how it works out. Um, yeah. So hopefully this will work out. Dave, um, tell us just for, for anyone who hasn't heard this podcast before, tell us a little bit about yourself. Great. Okay. Um, let's see. I run a lot. I'm trying to get back into it. Uh, I'm Ethan's best friend, and I don't really know what else is important. Oh, yeah, that's right. Now, when Dave says he runs a lot, it's like 70 to 100 miles a week. (laughs) It used to be. a lot. It definitely used to be. I don't run that much anymore. I'm trying to get back into shape. A lot of life happened, and uh, running has been kind of on the back burner, but... Uh, okay, but still, most people can't say they've ever run 70 miles in a week. That's 10 miles a day. True, true. But Very true. Anyway, right. keep, going, um, keep going. I just recently got employed as a school counselor interventionist at a high school in Colorado, um, and that is what I do with most of my time. Other than that, I coach cross-country and track and field for that high school. I also professionally coach a few individuals in my spare time, uh, so running and counseling is what I do. Yeah, Dave has his master's in clinical psychology. I should know this. You're my best friend. But is that... <laughs> it's a it's a master's in counseling and human services with a specialty in school counseling. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So that kind of ties in nicely with the first thing I was going to talk about, which is recently I... So let me give this a caveat real quick. And that caveat is... I, for the longest time, have just heard so many people bash the church and hate on it and say, oh my gosh, that space. And these are Christians too, by the way. Just last week, I was hearing Christians say, the church just became a space for me that was not safe. And in the back of my head, the the cynical Ethan is kind of going, yeah, 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 get over it because this is like the body of Christ, right? This is... The this is where we are ordained to come together and to be the body of Christ, and I 
actually just it only took one podcast for me to kind of realize where maybe not all but a lot of these people are coming from let me explain a little bit more um because for one i do hate when people bash the church um now there are a lot of people that have very good reason to bash certain churches however i feel like too many people just kind of make blake blankets blanket blanket statements which are just kind of like oh the church is so awful let's just go to nature and it's like well no because i've been a part of many awesome churches where the pastors have not abused people or shamed people or made them feel guilty or terrible um but i did listen to this podcast recently on spiritual trauma and i went into it i'll be honest with a little bit of a bias and after hearing some of the stories of these people, I was like, okay, I get why they would hate church, essentially. Um, hey, can I pause you right there? Ethan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry. What kind of a bias did you go into this um, thing with? Just the bias of, like, uh, oh, these people have bad theology and they're bored with church or they have some kind of postmodern ignorance and they just think that church is outdated and therefore they don't want to go and therefore they complain about it. And I mean, there are those people, of course, who just like have never had a, a, a really bad or traumatic experience in church. They just got bored of it and then complain about it. There are those kinds of people. So I kind of went into it thinking most of the people talking on this podcast would just be like that like postmodern, quote-unquote progressive, um, don't really have a reason to hate church, but do anyway, and then they call it spiritual trauma. Does that answer your question? It does. So you kind of went into it thinking, okay, it's just going to be another educated bashing session against the church. Exactly. With a like, postmodern flair. Exactly. Quasi-progressive, like, yeah. So, uh, for instance, one of the stories I remember was this th this guy told a story of when he was a little boy, his family was called to the front of the, the church for what they called a uh, stoning service. What? Obviously not with real stones, but basically his family stood on the stage of their church for an hour, and one by one other congregants would come up to the microphone and would basically condemn them for working at a pharmacy that also sold cigarettes. Wow. Is this, and, the, and like, is this like the equivalent of a spiritual roasting? It sounded, I mean, roasting usually has some kind of lighthearted tone to it, right? But like these people were serious, like yeah, well, I guess so. actually serious. Like wow. you are a terrible Christian. Unless you repent, you are going to hell for working at a place that sells cigarettes. And I was like, wow. Like I can't imagine being a little kid and seeing my parents on stage <laughs> having the rest of the church like tear them apart in the name of God um, wow, for doing yeah. something like that. Another lady, um, I'm trying to remember. Um, I was impressed because they, you know, it, it would kind of be easy to just do sexual assault cases, but it was actually like people legitimately thinking they were doing God's work by doing this kind of like incredibly abusive stuff to families or individuals in the church. I can't remember the other ones, um, but they're all similar. But like basically, hmm. ah, shoot, I don't want to butcher this and mess up this person's story. But like 
Actually, I just remembered a story from a friend of mine who she was one of those on-the-fence type of Christians where she really had a lot of pain in her background from outside of the church. And one day she goes into church wearing a summer dress, and one of the people in the church, a lady a couple years older than her, um, looks at her and says, hey, that's a cute dress. She said, thanks. And the other lady said, now where's the rest of it? You know, and then after that, my friend stopped going to church. And so I was like, is it worth it? <laughs> you know, like, sure, her dress was short, whatever. But is it worth having someone stop going to church to be fed the word of God and be welcomed into the community and the fellowship of believers? Like, is that worth it? And so, like, the more I examine this idea of spiritual trauma and, like, people legitimately hurting other people in the name of God, like, that really is not okay with me. It doesn't sit well with me. You sound like you were going to say something. Oh, no, it just doesn't sound like, you know, I mean, there's two very opposite opinions and, I don't know, givings of the word. You know, one is of peace and, and salvation and reclamation, and one is of fire and brimstone. <laughs> it sounds like a lot mm-hmm. of negative experiences within the church and the people that have had these experiences, obviously like the experience is valid. Like it's, it's something very negative and it's something that dissuades them from going to church and being a part of that body. Cause there's a little bit of a, uh, well, caustic people in that body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very well. I mean, that would dissuade me from going, I mean, it's just, it's the same thing in, in any group, you know, you have a negative, you have a, sorry, you have a negative experience in that group. You have a negative experience. Uh, Oh my goodness. I mean, that one time at band camp, you know, Mm -hmm. and it pretty much dissuades you for the rest of your life. Yeah. 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 I mean, you can have experiences like that anywhere, but here's the thing that I learned from the podcast, which is with spiritual trauma, it almost goes a step deeper because you have associated these people. If it's a pastor who's telling your family, they're going to hell. He's almost godlike to you. Not in the sense that you worship him, but maybe in the sense that he is a representative of God or of, mm-hmm. yeah, of God. So, like, imagine that someone who, you know, essentially represented God to you, a visible representation of God, he, you, you trust him. You trust him to tell you what God thinks and what God says and what God's word says. And suddenly he says, you are bad you do bad things, you know, like you deserve shame. Like imagine what that does to you deep inside, like your soul and your, like that would be hard to recover from. And I realized listening to the podcast that, um, like just how fortunate I've been to not only grow up in awesome churches, but to have my dad be a pastor who is a phenomenal pastor. And like everybody loves my dad. He's someone who is, above board with everything and loves everyone regardless of anything. So like, you know, like the idea of me hearing that story, it's like that is the complete opposite of anything I could picture my dad doing. My dad, who is both my father and my pastor for 18 years of my life. So, you know, like it's, I just realized how fortunate I am to not have a background like that. And there, and that I realized that that kind of informs the the reason that I see God the way I do, which is loving and benevolent and, you know, generous, gracious, etc. 
Um, I don't have a tr- I don't have a super hard time believing those things about God most of the time. You know, the image that I had um, is of a kid who is told by his own father or his own mother, um, "You're a disgrace. You're disgraceful. I don't love you. You're awful." I mean, that's just as powerful. Considering, yes, father, son, um, you know, mother, daughter, mm-hmm. etc. Like that's a really important relationship. Just as our relationships are very important with our pastors of that spiritual body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and like there's there's going to be a difference between domestic abuse and spiritual abuse, but yeah, they're both very powerful. Maybe in slightly different, nuanced ways. I actually this is this might be a little tangential, but. I, heard, I read a book a while ago. It was a transcript of a talk given at Socrates at the city, Socrates in the city, and I forget who gave it. But the title of the talk was something about like atheists and their fathers, and he kind of went through how um, most of the major atheists in history had terrible fathers, you know. And obviously that could go. Well, isn't that interesting? Yeah, and that could go several different ways, like. That doesn't mean that everyone with a good father will be a Christian or that everyone with a bad father will be an atheist. Obviously not. However, it is interesting that most, or maybe it was all, nah, I'll say most, most of the most noteworthy atheists, for, intri- for instance, Nietzsche, um, who's the one that died recently? Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, did not have good relationships with their fathers. And... Um, I just think it's so interesting how the relationship with the father, you know, almost informs our relationship with the father, God, the father, um, you know, because obviously it is a mirroring. Yeah. 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 You would have a hard time believing that, you know, if, if my earthly father, whom I can see didn't love me, why on earth would some invisible father who I can't see want to love me? You know, especially if he's perfect and holy, you know, of course. And I mean, even in basic psychology, the relationship between an individual and their mother and father pretty much, I mean, it has a really big impact on relationships that they see in the future. Well, not that they see, but relationships that they have in the future, especially in romantic relationships. Uh, you, you see a mm. lot of broken families and a lot of um, broken sons and daughters. Now, it doesn't say that all of them are doomed. You see all sorts of beautiful, resilient cases where the children grow up to be even, you know, they, they want to fix their situation and they're very aware of it and they go and they, and they have beautiful, healthy families. But mm-hmm. um, a lot of the, the rule versus the exception to the rule is that in those relationships, they are first modeled by the parents. It's the first important relationship in the child's life. And if that is not modeled correctly or if it's very unhealthy, then they, for the rest of their lives, struggle with establishing those relationships. Yeah. And keeping healthy relationships and boundaries with other individuals. Yeah. I, <laughs> this is uh, kind of funny but also kind of brutal. I have a friend. Oh, boy. He, Can't wait. He, he's one of those guys who is completely black and white. Like he um, – like very uh, – it's one thing or the other. Yeah. Like, For sure. honestly, gives gives no rips what people think. And he started a dating profile. I think it was Bumble. I can't remember which one exactly. Maybe it was Tinder. <laughs> All but good his, stories start with dating profiles. Right. <laughs> really 
Yeah, in his profile, so his bio, he wrote out a lengthy paragraph about how he's a Christian and he's looking for very serious things and he will not um, copulate before marriage and all this stuff. And he said he had four uh, deal breakers. And uh, wow. what was it? Deal breakers in the bio after a paragraph. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. intense. He didn't get any dates from his experience. I was about to say, what, what's the match rate for this kiddo? Oh, man, that's too bad. Okay, but... but what were what, what, the deal breakers? So, one was being a Christian. One... I can't remember the others. Probably something like age. You have to live in the same city as me. I don't know. Probably practical. But one of them, the one that I felt like I disagreed with, was that... Your, her parents had to be married. And I thought that was so interesting. And he was like, well, yes, I've been doing research and the statistics show that a woman or a man whose parents are divorced are X amount percentage more likely to get divorced because their parents are divorced. So he put in his bio that if you want to go out with me, your parents have to be married still. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And I asked, I asked him, I said, so what about the chance of redemption? Like maybe her parents are terrible, but maybe she has been saved and redeemed and she's flipped her life around and has no intention of ever divorcing her husband once she gets married, you know? And oh, he was exactly. like, nope, I have to listen to the statistics. And I was like, oh my gosh, man. <laughs> He's hardcore oh, wow. and oh, still man. single. If anyone's interested, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually in seminary right now, so if you're looking for a seminary-educated man, <laughs> that he has very is, uh, concrete, absolute ideas. Hey, yeah, no, he's honestly dude. one of my best friends. I he's one of the few people from college I still keep in touch with to this day. Talk to him probably once a week, and um, I mean, he's good-looking, he's healthy, he's fit, he's in seminary, um, very, very, very smart. Um, just a little strange around the edges, but <laughs> aren't we all, Ethan? Aren't we all? Isn't <laughs> yeah, that what sells us in it. general? Yeah, you come to love him like I do. Um, so if you're interested, let me know. <laughs> Send me an email yeah. at ethan at ethrenault dot com. He <laughs> <It> was <laughs> so brave. He was so brave to put that in his bio. I mean, he knew what he wanted, and he didn't want anything else. <laughs> Man, it had to be had to be that. But hey, you bring up a very good point of redemption and how I mean that case of those kids. Uh, at least what I have seen in the schools, like those kids that do come from broken families, when you make them cognizant of those decisions. Uh, they are more likely to spring back of their parents' decisions in the opposite way. Yes. So I love this example. Um, this is on the internet. Not sure how true it is. I think it's like 80% true, but there's a lovely scene. It's an anecdote for sure. Um, there was, uh, please David, don't butcher this. Okay. We all know the show The Prince of Bel-Air with Will Smith. The Fresh Prince uh, of Bel-Air. There was Bel-Air. a lovely – thank you. Thank <laughs> you for the correction. That is very important. In Westville. Okay, we're done. Um, lovely scene in that show where in the show Will Smith's dad kind of a flake flakes out at a very important moment. Uh, Will Smith then becomes very upset and then – on stage, like in in reality, while they're filming on stage, like has this breakdown, uh, starts saying things like, you know, not necessarily like, why did he leave? But uh, 
one of the things that he did say is like, like, am I not worth it enough? Like, why did he leave? But he also has this huge rant on like, I will be better than him. Like, I will love my kids. I will love my son way more than he ever did to me. I will do everything that he never did for me. And he says all this in real life to, you know, the actor, Uncle Phil. Um, and then he just starts breaking down on stage because in reality, Will Smith's dad kind of did those things. Mm. The dad in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, he definitely projected his real father onto this character, had a very real breakdown on stage. Uh, and then Uncle Phil, in an impromptu improvisation, just embraced Will Smith, and that was pretty much the end of the scene. Mm. But so what I mean when when you kind of point out, like when you guide them and you say, okay, like you are hurt by this situation, you're frustrated, you're sad, you're angry, and overall, you're just hurt. Like, your idea of the world, of whatever idea you had, has been shattered. How do you move on? How do you move on from that? How do you change? And they have two choices. Either they can move on and build and recover, or they can become, um, oh my goodness, that word, bitter. Very bitter and judgmental, and then make their parents' mistakes their own mistakes, and then pass it on to the kids in terms of mm. justice. It's their only form to get justice. Well, I went through this. I was treated this way. Now you get to be treated this way because I was treated mm. this way. So those two Man. choices. So obviously if you, as, as a counselor, if you get a kid that is going through this situation, if you direct them toward that area of, hey, like, how can you make sure that this doesn't happen? You know, they have to confront those feelings, they have to confront those um, those thoughts and abstractions. But more than likely, when you do that, they start to move the opposite direction. So you're saying the first step in healing kind of anything related to this is becoming aware of it? In a sense, yes. Um, really, with any trauma, uh, the main focus in counseling and uh, trauma intervention is unlocking the trauma. And what's that mean? Great question. Great question. So, Ethan, do you know what the definition of trauma is? Yeah, general? we probably should have started with that. <laughs> well, maybe we can cut this out and put it in the front. <laughs> okay, go do ahead. Do you know what the definition of trauma is? Uh, no, give it to me. Okay. So, there's kind of three points. Uh, trauma is a disordered psychic or behavioral state resulting from severe mental or emotional stress or physical injury of an emotional upset. So any experience that stuns, overwhelms, or alters a person, whether that's a child or adult, what uh, are mm. more harmful circumstances that persistently impede well-being and functioning? I like to mm. think about it as like you are a person and you have all of these coping skills and ideas and mental fortitude, if you will, um, you know, to handle the stresses in life. Now, when life hands you something that is a bit overwhelming, say you fail a class in college and you don't have the money to pay for it, that can be technically defined as a trauma, albeit a little t-trauma. I'll get to that later. Uh, classic trauma, uh, whether it be physical trauma, you know, your body just can't take the beating, so you break a bone after falling. Uh, maybe you get into a fight, someone breaks your nose. The result of someone punching your nose and the resilience of all the cartilage and skin and bone, there's no bone in the nose, but you get what I mean, <laughs> around that area, a trauma happens when those tissues and, and um, structures can't take the physical force that was pushed onto it. Therefore, it breaks. 
such as the brain does, such as the psyche does, such as your mental health does. Psychosocial situations happen, such as, well, really, one of the big T's always is physical abuse, emotional abuse, um, physical rape, that kind of deal. Obviously, those would fall into the category of harmful circumstance or that stuns, overwhelms, or alters a person. Mm -hmm. Um, And you just don't have the coping skills to get over that situation immediately. Thus, always, usually after a trauma, a person is, you know, doesn't, well, in my mind, it goes into like a semi-catatonic state. It's just one of total overwhelm and just stunned. They're just, it's just total shock. Mm -hmm. Really. Is that another word? Yeah, that's another word for shock. Catatonic? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So what happens is when the trauma is experienced, a few things happen. One is it is internalized. And so it, it's not like externalized or ex-processed. It's instead it's internalized. And the mind does all sorts of lovely things with it. Sometimes it can take it and spread it. Uh, the most common is you try to forget, you know, it's a traumatic experience. So I try to forget Mm -hmm. as as cliche as it sounds, it's actually the brain's best defenses against that traumatic experience. Is that the best way to deal with it though? Long-term? No. Great question. That's why the main focus in counseling and psychotherapy is to unlock the trauma in every PTSD case, in every traumatic experience case, it's all about the patient confronting and accepting the experiences that happened, but then moving on from them. A lot of traumatic uh, or trauma survivors um, will identify with the trauma and have that be their sole identifier. I am a survivor of XYZ, or I am an experiencer of XYZ. And, and that's, that's all I am. Their sole type of identity. Thing? And that is all that they are. Right. Yeah. And that's very early stages. Um, and of course, people can have that identity, but still be healthy in the way that they act with it. Therefore, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. now in our nation, we have a lot of shooting survivors, sadly. Well, not sadly. We have a lot of shooting survivors. Thank goodness they survived. However, it is sad that we yeah. have so many instances I knew where what you meant. survivors yeah. are created. Yes. I just want right. to make sure that is clear. Right. Um, and it hits really close to home. You know, we grew up in Colorado. We were, you know, what? You were in second grade. I was in first grade for the Columbine shooting. Uh, yeah, I was in second grade. I remember right. exactly where I was. Yeah. Like, schools were evacuated. We were a couple miles we had away. no idea what was going yeah. on. Yeah. It was in our same, it was in our, that was actually in the district where we grew right. up. Ethan and I grew up in that district uh, of Columbine High School. Yeah, I was, a, I was... So Columbine is on Pierce Street. My school was on Wadsworth Street, which is literally one street over, um, a couple blocks down, but one street over. So I think I was, what, like three miles from Columbine when it happened? Something like that. But, yeah, I was too young to really have any kind of uh, impact from it. True, I was like, yeah. oh, okay, that well, happened. True understanding of it, for sure. Because right. if you did understand what was going on, it definitely left an imprint on you. Mm-hmm. But what we got was an understanding of the events afterward. Active shooter drills, lockdowns, um, oh, yeah. all those other <laughs> lovely drill experiences. Oh, yeah. you know, In the 50s, they had duck and cover drills. We had active shooter yeah. drills. Um, however, as I was saying, uh, 
identifying with being a survivor of a trauma and dealing with it healthily. So obviously confronting what had happened, accepting those feelings and experiences. But instead, I mean, being active in that community of helping others as well. So it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's a shift. Hmm. Definitely a shift. Those that can confront those experiences uh, and move past. Yeah. This is, well, as you're talking, okay, so let me give another caveat, which is I don't want to at all say, you know, I'll just, oh, okay, I'll just say what I'm going to say and then um, talk say, about it afterwards. Say what you mean to say. <laughs> say what you need to say. Um, so I wrote a blog post recently about kind of three years after the experience of becoming quote-unquote famous or internet famous or having a viral video, whatever. And in the blog post, mm-hmm. I said, I feel like you could almost call what happened to me traumatic, like an experience of or an instance of trauma. And after hearing you talk a little bit more, I think that that actually is accurate because, and this is where I'm worried about saying that because I don't want to say like, oh, this is the same thing that happened to like victims of uh, some kind of abuse or like actual harm because it's a completely different kind of trauma. But I think that what happened to me and what happens to a lot of people on the internet when they become famous and they may not realize it is some sort of trauma. I don't know exactly what it is or how to name it, um, but it fit most of the descriptions you gave. For instance, changing the way that we think about ourselves. Um, because like for years now, it's been like, if, and this is kind of being kind of raw and honest here, but like if within meeting someone within like 10 or 15 minutes, if they don't know who I am, you know, the shirtless runner type of who I am, then I'm basically unvaluable and worthless. They're not going to think I'm cool. Like, so in that sense, it really did change the way I viewed myself as not just Ethan Renault, you know, who's a self-contained identity and who is loved by God. But no, it's like they have to know that I am this person who they may have seen on the internet three years ago. And... You know, you think that after three years I'd be over that, but I think there's something in my psyche that like really is was was shaken by millions of people around the world, both fawning over me and hating me at the same time. You know, by the masses. Um, I forget the other definitions you said as you were saying it that kind of stood out to me, um, but yeah, it's it's a different type of animal. Because I wasn't harmed, I wasn't physically harmed, I wasn't, I wasn't abused by anyone. However, it was an event that really um, changed a lot about myself and my brain and my psyche and my ego for sure. You know. Um, so yeah, what would what would you say to that? Uh, well, many things, many things. You opened up uh, a whole new door to this conversation. So the, the, the first yeah, one... Yeah, and this isn't spiritual trauma. I guess this is just... I guess we'll just label this podcast well, I think, trauma in general. <laughs> I think we can label this uh, trauma part one because this is where we start to lay the foundation. And then maybe we touch on spiritual trauma a little bit later. Um, but you, oh, do, sure. you bring up about two or three different things that I want to touch on. Number one, um, invalidating your own trauma experience. So because you weren't abused or physically harmed in any way... Um, 
and this is something that is big in the trauma world and in trauma counseling, um, people that have been abused or harmed, uh, people that have been in spousal abusive relationships will say, well, I wasn't raped or, well, you know, I didn't have this trauma happen to me or that trauma happened to me. I obviously Mm, like they invalidate their own experience first. (laughs) Yeah. Like he may have done X, Y, and Z, but he didn't hit me. He didn't. Exactly. Yeah. So I've heard that actually. Yeah. And that's part of reprocessing the trauma. That's part of unlocking the trauma again. Um, confronting and accepting the terms of what happened. Yes, you were in an abusive relationship. Yes, this experience happened to you. You had a limo come up to your house and pick you up to, you know, take you to the Today Show. You had millions of viewers when you had literally what? Um, At that time, you had just over a thousand friends, I think, on Facebook. You know, people that you had met in your travels. I don't know. You know, at Moody and everything Mm -hmm. else, which, you know, it's it's a pretty solid number. But then in a single day, you reached your friend limit. (laughs) You know, I mean, these are things. So (laughs) it was just the second thing I want to touch on. So the newest research coming out in the field of trauma states that there is such a thing and a concept called big T and little t. Big T meaning big trauma, little t meaning little trauma. Now, don't let big and little fool you. It's not necessarily Mm. rating trauma. Big T is more viewed and classified as the classic big traumas. Abuse, neglect, rape, you name it. The the big classic ones. Uh, Little T, however, Mm. is subjective trauma. Because, again, you're exactly right. You touch on those definitions where it's an experience that stuns, overwhelms, or alters a person. Right. Now, alters, stuns, or overwhelms the current coping skills or the current defense mechanisms that you currently have. So if you are used to dealing with a thousand friends or you're used to dealing with you know a certain lifestyle, um, that can be very overwhelming. I'm imagining like a Tibetan monk who lives in a little village or a temple of maybe like, you know, 25 or 50 people. And then he gets thrown into what is New York city. Mm-hmm. You know, that would be a very overwhelming experience. Yeah. However, with us being thrown from our little towns into New York city, it's not the same thing. And everyone, every individual, every body in this world has a different set of coping skills, defense mechanisms, a different, um, you know, resistance and resilience. A different threshold for subjective trauma. I wouldn't want to rank it like that, but a different form of resilience. Yeah. Uh Essentially. Yes. Okay. So naturally, uh, one of mine was, you know, I, for, first of all, so mirroring your story, um, I identified as being as a runner. And I ran for a long time. And I had this idea that if I ran hard enough and long enough and trained long enough for a certain amount of time, that I would be good. And I wanted to show Mm -hmm. everyone that, you know, a normal person such as me, not a superstar in high school, if, you know, he worked hard enough, could make it onto the biggest stage. However, when I got to college and it was my last year in the NCAA, uh, I started off really well and then I got sick. And then I couldn't continue running at the level that I was in cross country. Mm-hmm. Uh, in cross country, the top seven race, 
Uh, by the time regionals came around, I was the eighth man on the team. Now, what does that mean? It means that as eighth man, I was the alternate. So I was... So here's two different lenses. Instead of saying I was taken with my team to nationals and I got to support and watch and cheer for them as they raced the national race, um, for a long time, I said I was dragged to the national meet. I was forced to watch and cheer for people hmm. um, that beat me yeah. in those races. As they raced the national championships, uh, when I had finished, what, third on the team just two months prior. Hmm. So I went from third on the team to eighth on the team. And that, I mean, because I identified as a runner, it overwhelmed the skills and resilience that I'd already had. Yeah. So again, but at the same time, other people would look at that and say that you didn't make a running team. Congratulations. Like that's, that's not abuse or whatever. That's the difference between big T and little T subjective trauma and classic. Trauma. Okay. Yeah. So it's like you were, instead of being happy for your, your teammates and happy that they were succeeding and happy you could go watch them and cheer them on, you were sitting on the sideline because you just, you should have been in their shoes. You, you know, yeah. If, and, um, yes, because what did I identify as? I identified as a good runner and that experience invalidated that and crushed it and said, nope, you're not a good runner. Instead, you're just not good enough of a runner. Oh yeah. Because, um, so it's funny because that's, it lines up exactly with another story, uh, from my, we'll call it fame trauma, which was, um, like, uh, two months or so after the viral video, someone told me, did you know, like, have you checked your Facebook filtered message folder, Facebook filtered message folder where like, and I was like, what's that? And he's like, Oh, it's where all the filtered messages go. Like people you're not friends with. I was like, Oh my gosh, I had no idea I had one. So this is two months later. I start checking it. Sure enough, there's 20,000 messages in there from people. Most of them are pointless, you know, it's like, Hey, Hey, what's up? Hey, you're hot. Hey, you know, whatever. And then I'm going through them like delete, delete, delete. And then one says, hi, Ethan, this is Ellen DeGeneres. I want you to come on my show. And I was like, no, shut up. What? I remember that day. I remember that day when you asked me to see, to check my filtered messages and see if I got anything. And then you told me that. Yeah. I look like, I still look back on that as one of the angry, like today I still get angry about this because so, so around the time shortly after my viral video was the damn Daniel viral video. You remember that? Yes. Um, the damn Dan Daniel. Daniel back at it with the yeah. white sneakers again or something. The white vans again. Yeah. That's right. And so they went on Ellen and I remember watching them go on Ellen and be so mad because they're just like little middle schoolers and they were like so nervous. They wouldn't even make eye contact with her. They were just like, Ugh. and I was like, oh my gosh, if I was on Ellen, I would be doing so much better than them. They don't deserve to be there. I deserve to be there. I hate them. Their video isn't funny. My video was awesome. And like all like this anger and jealousy and envy and rage was just like pumping through me. And I was so mad because to this day, I still wonder what would have happened if I had discovered my filtered message folder sooner mm. because Ellen has 30, 40 million subscribers on YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. So like getting on her stage is getting on one of the biggest stages in the world, meaning 
that my trajectory in life could have gone a much different direction. And who knows what would have happened if I had found that message sooner in it. The thing everyone says to me, which is not helpful, side note for everybody, is to say, well, there's a reason you didn't find that message. God must have had a different plan for you. Right. Why is that not helpful to you? It's not helpful because um, there's like... Like, just to be honest, there's a big part of me that wishes the fame had gone a different, like, had had been more sustained, I guess, as far as helping me do the things I wanted to do with my life and live on that, such as writing, be creative, make videos, podcasts, mm-hmm. um, you know, that kind of thing. So I kind of see it as once you hit a certain threshold of, for lack of a better word, fame, um, then you get to get paid by doing the things you love. And that doesn't mean being lazy and not working for me. That means doing the things I love, you know, and getting paid for it. So I'm working, but it doesn't feel like work. Um, and I just so, feel like right. there's, there's regret because I feel like that could have opened those doors. Because there were actually a couple other messages. Like Rachel Ray also messaged me on Facebook and said, hey, we want to fly out to New York City and have you on my show. So who knows how many viewers she has, but, you know, just like the more exposure you get, the more exposure you get. And um, it just could take you in different directions. So there's still obviously a lot of like anger and regret there. And um, yeah, I feel like the word regret can become shallow until you really experience something you really regret. So go ahead. Well, it's right. This, this isn't regretting like, well, I wish I would have gone to the movies with my friends over the weekend. That sounded really fun. It's, I, I regret this experience because it would have changed the trajectory of my life. I mean, you, right. you, you even tied, um, your own, uh, work experience too. It's like, Hey, like I'm a creative person. I like making videos and blogging and podcasting. Like this is something that I would have wanted to do. And this technically would have been that big break. So if we flipped that experience into a work experience, saying, well, I forgot to shake hands with this person who was looking directly at me. Oh, it happened to have been Steve Jobs from Apple. Maybe mm. I could have started working with him. Or, you know, like if you, if you, if you reframe it to, I missed a really big break for my job. And now my whole future mm-hmm. career is impacted because of that. I think, I think we don't do that because it involves YouTube and viewership and, and you know, fame. And, and things can get really cloudy with that. Um, obviously, because you know, it seems more conceited or something to say it that way? Well, yeah, I think that definitely is a factor for it. Um, being a school counselor in a middle school and we're trying to get all these kids to, you know, okay, like let's think about like what we want to be. Um, oh, and by the way, it can't be professional athlete, YouTube star or streamer. Like, <laughs> and, mm. and, and you, and it's so interesting. Like these kids, they, they just sit there dumbfounded. They're like, what, what do you mean? I can't be a <laughs> professional YouTuber. Like, people get paid to, to, to YouTube. Why can't I do that? Or, well, why can't I just be a professional athlete, you know? Like, back in our day, it was professional athlete, professional soccer star. And then as we grew up, it was, well, professional video gamer, and now it's professional YouTuber. Just mm-hmm. all the stuff that's just, it's super, it's just so, exactly. It's just, you have to be in the right place at the exact right time in order for that to happen. Yeah. And even then, you may not even go viral or get famous or whatever, you know? Yeah, just like, totally. uh, yeah, it's just like all those artists that are now totally famous after they're dead. And while they were alive, they were nobodies. 
You know? Yeah, like ne- Mac Miller. Never... It's like so he dies and everyone loves him. And right. He was talented when he was alive, but half the people who listen to him now didn't know him. You know? Right. But but for yeah, you, it's, it's you tied the your other... job into it. You know, it's you tied your interests into it, your passions into it, and you missed out on that. It wasn't missing out on being famous. It was missing out on a different platform for your career. Yeah. And this might sound kind of like a D-bag thing to say, but um, on, on the other hand, like, there's – how do I say this? I'll just say it. There's a, there's a big difference between a middle schooler who thinks that they deserve to have the camera on them and someone like me who is educated, traveled the world, been to three colleges and seminary, and um, you know, worked with different missions organizations, been on every inhabited continent – you know, like, I feel like, uh, how do I say it without sounding douchey? Like, I well, have sounds more like to say the, yeah. than the average person, and it's like, right. I'm just waiting for, um, yeah, I guess for lack of a better word, waiting for that big break when I am able to communicate those things creatively, like I love to do, um, to a big enough od- audience which will sustain the, those passions. So let me throw this back at you. Mm-hmm. It sounds like what you're trying to say is in middle school, and I think you pointed at this in your blog post too, the limelight effect, the limelight phenomenon, or spotlight effect, the spotlight, spotlight phenomenon. phenomenon. Yeah. 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 Um, versus it says, look at me, look at how awesome I am, versus look at what I have to share. Please. Like in middle school, it's it's classic. Like the, that actual phenomenon starts in middle school, um, spotlight phenomenon. Where it's, oh, really? you know, everyone's watching me, everyone is, um, you know, paying attention to me, my life story like is, is a head on display for everyone. Um, yes, but it's more of an internal narrative kind of deal. Hmm. Like, uh, think Truman Show. But like you if know, your post gets like 50 likes or something, you're suddenly like, oh, everyone in the world must have seen that. No, it's, um, think more internally of... Oh my goodness! I have this slight little stain on my jeans, and everyone will notice. That's the spotlight oh, effect. Oh, so okay. that starts when you're in middle school because the brain starts really developing during the the um, puberty years, et cetera, et cetera. Anywho, would, um, would Freud say that's where like the ego develops? Uh, I'm too tired for Freud right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. You know, I could whip out my book and go through psychosocial development, but we more so go through Erickson's psychosocial development instead of Freud. Okay. Well, middle school is before, when you start before to go anything gets industry whipped versus out. inferiority, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> we'll just cut that out. Let me explain again why I, I interjected. In middle school, they want to be YouTube famous or they want to be you know a professional whatever because they say, I want people to notice me. I want people to know who I am. I want people to say, oh, look at that guy. He's so cool. Versus... Now, some of us adults kind of take that idea and still run with it, and we're, you know, 20-somethings and still go with that idea. But the opposite of that is, look what I can share. And that's what a bunch of social media and all these other platforms are like, look what I have to share. Like, hey, like, I've been to all these different continents, and I've been around the world, and I've had these experiences, and this is what I have to glean from it. These are the lessons that I've learned and stuff that I want to share with you You, Joe Schmo, who's been on the couch watching Netflix for eight hours, who hasn't been to all these other countries, let me share with you what I have learned versus 
look at me and all of these things that I've done and been to and been a part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's very hard to see that sometimes with YouTube fame and with other avenues of, of fame. Yeah. And I, I see that because as I admitted in the blog, uh, one of my guilty pleasures has become watching Logan Paul vlogs because um, here's the thing. You watch him and I'm not recommending anyone watch him, honestly, like whatever. But most of his fans are middle and high school aged and Ethan Renault. <laughs> and, um, but you see every single time he interacts with his fans, he goes out and every single one of them is holding their own selfie sticks with their phones on it, pointing at them. And they're like, look, I'm meeting Logan Paul. And I would wager that they all have their own little YouTube channels with like 12 followers. And they're all trying to become Logan Paul. However, a couple things. Um, I'm not 100% sure what this means, but I think that might be cognitive dissonance where it's like they think they are the next Logan Paul or something and meeting him somehow affirms that. Um, But the other thing, in addition to what you said about spotlight phenomenon, is Logan Paul is surprisingly intelligent. Like he's... Like, there'll be times, and I guess most people wouldn't catch it because they're distracted by his general douchery and chauchery, and, you know? But he's, he uses words that sometimes I'm like, oh, that's kind of an impressive word to slip in right there, you know? Or, like, he doesn't mince words. Oh, who would have known this uh, beachhead would have... Uh, yeah, and I mean, like most that. people wouldn't notice that, but I guess because I have an affinity, affinity for vocabulary... You know, like I noticed like, oh, this guy actually is not as dumb as he makes himself look for the sake of entertainment. He actually has intelligence and therefore I can respect that as a 20 something adult when I watch his video. So it's not like I'm just watching some idiot be idiotic. Like I actually think he does know what he's doing. Um, And I don't think that anyone can just amass a following of millions the way that the Pauls have without being somewhat intelligent, you know, but now we're getting way off track and we should wrap it up here. Right. I think because like you sure. said, we I could just need to correct something really yeah, quick. Yeah, yeah. Do you mind? I'm super sorry. Cognitive dissonance. That's not, uh, that's a totally separate idea than, um, that kid that like wants to be YouTube famous and then sees Logan Paul. That's more like an affirmation thing. Cognitive dissonance is two separate, very different ideas. It's like being a Christian, but also being, uh, very atheistic and having atheistic um, ideas. That's cognitive dissonance. Wait, so in, in that case, would cognitive cognitive dissonance be like, I claim to be a Christian, but the way I live my life looks like an atheist? Uh, very much so, yeah. Or vice versa. Um, I'm a super trashy person, and I am not worth anything or anything to anyone. Um and then they, they, they live this awesome, very moral life. Cognitive dissonance is having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes um, that are opposite or relating to your behavioral decisions and attitude change. So your thoughts don't necessarily line up with your behaviors. I am a Christian person, but I'm going to go out and just do all of the things that I'm not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Starting That's- with the Ten Commandments. Like We're just going to start doing that. Yeah. That's kind of what I meant, ish, is that these these kids think like there's some divide between what they believe about themselves, which is I'm the next Logan Paul, 
and the reality of their lives, which is, I live in an apartment with my mom, and no one really cares what I have to say or, or think. You know, and that might be harsh, you know, but that's kind of the reality. Like, the belief versus the reality, is that not cognitive dissonance, or... Cognitive dissonance specifically, yeah, cognitive dissonance is specifically a person having certain thoughts and acting differently, Mm -hmm. like just between the individual. It's not necessarily reality or versus expectations. So it's their... It's the individual. Yes. That, yeah. So what you're thinking of is a little different. It's probably just flat out denial. Yeah. Um, I believe that I'm going to be this awesome person when reality I live in my mom's basement and have like two YouTube followers, which is myself and my mom. Mm. And I think I'm going to be worth something. Can you follow yourself on um, YouTube? I don't even know. You know, I don't even have an account, so I can't even say. Um, but, and you can delete that later if you want. But No, uh, I think it's good for you to, for, I mean, I guess... The more educated we can be on this podcast, the better. So now I've learned something, too, from my own podcast. Um, well, there you go. I'm glad that I could teach the Ethan Renault something. Yes. I didn't mean to sound like a total jerk while doing it. but No, I feel like I do that to you all the time with theological stuff. So it's all it's even. Ah, well. <laughs> um, as long as I listen with an open ear, man, that's, that's great. Yeah, so we will end whatever sporadic... Uh, roundabout ranting on trauma that was right there. We'll call that part one. And Dave and I will link back up sometime in the near future for trauma part two. So to everybody... And whatever that entails. Yeah. (laughs) So to everybody uh, listening, I hope that this has been, I don't know, helpful, informative. Um, I learned something from Dave, so hopefully you did as well. And, um, yeah, I hope that this didn't bring up any kind of trauma from your own life, uh, whoever's listening, because I am aware that this is a very sensitive topic, and I hope that we've addressed it well. If not, or if you have any corrections, or if you have any comments or questions or suggestions for future podcast episodes, you can... Not hesitate to email Ethan at EthanRenault.com or go to EthanRenault.com and click contact. That email goes straight to me. Um, On my website, you'll also find my merch line, my books, which are available on Amazon. And you will find plenty of blog posts, including the most recent one. I think it's still the most recent one. um, Called Fame Messed Me Up More Than Porn Ever Did which I think is true. It really messes with your head. Um, So again, thank you all so much for listening. Thanks so much for Dave. Dave, 10 seconds for the final word. Um, 10 seconds. Let's see. Um, Thanks again for having me on. It's awesome that I can actually talk with my friend, even though you're like thousands of miles away and I can do it basically in real time. Um, Interested to see how this works out. And for everyone listening, um, whatever you're going through, you're strong. You can be resilient. And it takes time, and it'll take growth. There's no substitute for time. Nope, you can go ahead and cut that out. That's super cheesy. (laughs) No, I thought that was great. Um, Yeah, so anyway, thanks to Dave. Thanks also to Mark Breda. Breda? I still don't know how to pronounce his last name. I'm sorry, Mark. Um, But thank you to Mark, who faithfully and tirelessly produces these and puts them out so that you can hear them. So 
yeah, looking forward to hearing back from you guys, and I will talk to you all soon. This is Abscond with Ethan Renault featuring my best friend, Dave Marino. Talk to you guys soon. Bye. Abscond, Abscond.